going to do a little sales pitch. It's all right if it's on the, the tape. See these little nifty little pins? They're magnets, except this one for some reason sticks. Nifty little pin. You can stick them on yourself. You can put them on your metal lamps. You can wear them on your hats. <laughs> They're kind of an esprit de corps for Ananda. It's nice to have some little thing that everybody sees. I was saying to people this morning that this symbol actually became Ananda's logo in people's mind when Tom Shot made it into jewelry. Until Tom made it into jewelry and people started wearing it, it wasn't, nobody really cognized it as being the symbol of Ananda. So all the gold jewelry, the earrings that you see, he started that 20 years ago, I guess. Yeah, but the, the logo was around for a long time, but it wasn't cognized. But now these, we made these so that light bearers could, it's easier to use a magnet than a pin. But they're not just for light bearers, and that's a, a misunderstanding that I realize has uh, surfaced. So now I'm saying, look, you, anybody can have one. And you can wear them, and then you can kind of wear your heart on your sleeve. And when you're not using it, oops, I guess it's not, it's not metal. Maybe it isn't metal. There. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they're for sale in the, in the uh, gift shop. They're $18 each. And that's that. I don't know why it's important to me. I did, I did arrange the manufacture of them. But for some reason, it's important to me that people like them and wear them. I have no rational explanation of that. Absolutely none. There was a period of time before Swami did the Naya Swami um, order, which unfortunately m- confused it, where uh, when he first went to India in 2003... And he developed what was called the, uh, well, that was when the Savika order happened. But this is when he really declared Ananda Sangha, the, the ideals that we believe in that are printed in our, that's when he wrote that in 2003 in India. And th- there used to be an extra thing in there that the color of Ananda was a golden color like the sun. You know, very similar to that color, not yellow, more golden. And so yellow and uh, that golden and white became the colors of Ananda. Especially in India, everybody, went there, when there were events, they would wear white and wear these gold scarves. And it just was a wonderful esprit de corps. But when all of this happened, and people started wearing yellow and white and blue, it just, there were just too many different costumes, and it got very confusing. But it was very nice to have something. And this is a small by comparison, but it was somehow. And you know, you wear it, if you wear it, sometimes people will actually ask you. And occasionally they'll actually care. <laughs> yeah, so it's nice. Okay, that's my little pitch. Uh, now, uh, we are at number 10, uh, but there was a few things from last week. I have some little, uh, several notes in my book that I needed to or wanted to expand on or straighten out before I go forward. Um, for reasons... Well, let's see. Wait till they're done making all that racket. For reasons that I don't remember, except I don't really, it doesn't really take much of an incentive to get me going, I started talking about um, the footnote in the Self-Realization Fellowship version of Autobiography of a Yogi when they talk about the Guru's blessings will be yours if you follow certain institutional rules. What the, what the footnote says, and you know, I, I think it's bad theology, but it's also just bad writing. You know, members in good standing or members of Self-Realization Fellowship will receive the blessings of the Masters. 
And, you know, it's, it offended me. And I had the opportunity to write a website in which I got to say everything I wanted to say. I'm not really sure whether I commented on it or not. I may have decided it was just too rude. But there was another point that was actually far more important than anything that I said. And the reason I was talking about it was undoubtedly because we were talking about the inner realities of... Um, the inner reality of the spiritual path. That it isn't about dogma. It isn't about just having a guru. You have to really participate. It, somewhere else, Swamiji wrote, and he wrote this way very seriously. This, he wasn't just being snide or clever. He said, um, no one can promise the blessings of the guru except the guru. And he said, when anybody tells you that if you do this, the guru will bless you, um, what right do they have to tell you that? They, they can't commit the master. That has to be a relationship between you and the master. And, you know, formal allegiance, following all the rules, even taking initiation, if you don't really take initiation, it, there's no, no link is formed. And that's really the important point. And Swamiji, seeing, you know, SRF making promises that if you do these certain things, then Master will bless you. He just shook his head. He said, That's, they, they can't do that. No one can say that. I mean, Swami can't say that. No one can say that. It has to be between you and God. And on a much deeper level, that's what's really um, distressing about that. But you see, that's what churches start doing. This is what I was talking about last week, and this is what Master's talking about, dogma versus experience. Science just studies from the outside, religion is to experience. You're just not saved because you follow all the Catholic rituals. If you follow all the Catholic rituals with deep faith and participation in your heart, yes, of course, you will have a huge change of consciousness. But it will be just like um, in whatever... uh, the reading we had a couple of last week, not, not this past Sunday, but the week before, which was the one about where Jesus was walking through the streets and he was being crowded in from all sides. And then he said, someone touched me. And people thought it was a ridiculous statement on his part because so many people had touched him. And then he insisted, no, I felt power go out from me. Meaning that he himself wasn't even the cause. He didn't even know who touched me. I touched him, but somebody came to him with the magnetism that would actually draw that blessing through him, and he could feel it happened, and he wanted to know who it was. And then the woman identified herself, and she'd received a healing. That's what we're talking about. And we, we can approach, we don't have to be on anybody's membership role, and we don't even have to know to whom we are praying. But if the magnetism is there, God will find us. So I really wanted to correct that. Is there any comments or thoughts on that? About the difference between... Yeah. Well, about um, dogma versus experience. and Yes, exactly. It just explains it beautifully. Well, it's the fundament. It's Master's fundamental message, self-realization, which is why Ananda... Um, spent $13 million in 12 years of our lives to win the right to use the phrase self-realization because there is no other way to describe it. It is what Master taught. It's the essence of his teaching. It can't be. It's not an institution. It just can't be. It, it's, it's much more than that. Um, 
And then I found this. I've been, I've been going through my files, as you all know. And uh, when Swami first went to India in 2003, actually 2004, because it was quite the end of 2003, um, there was a local paper called the Hindust- Hindustani Times. And they invited him to write weekly articles for it, which he did for a number of months, I believe. Um, finally, he said he stopped for several reasons. The articles were so short that it took him too much time to write them. Because <laughs> he said it was very difficult to say something meaningful in so few words, so it took him all day sometimes to write those articles. If it had been three times as long, he could have written them in a third the time. Also, he felt that the company he was keeping in the newspaper um, was not sufficiently sophisticated. He didn't feel like it was really necessarily the right place. But he wrote a number of them, maybe a dozen or more, and they, they're really excellent. He's just really superb. And one of them was called The Mystery of Self. And this is, um, it's, it's, it's slightly related to our evolution question, but I'm not going to go back there completely. I'm just going to visit it very lightly, but it's related in this way. This is how Swami wrote, and I'll just paraphrase it. Um, Consciousness does not require a brain to exist. And he uses the example of... Uh, if there's two um, mollusks, 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 <laughs> so it is a hard word to say. Let's call them clams. Okay, <laughs> you know, one of them opens his mouth and, uh, but then decides that there's something coming around that he doesn't want to eat, and he'll close his mouth. But the other one will still open and close it independently. They both have independent consciousness, is what he's saying. They're not, they're not one unit. No matter how simple they are, they're still individual. But the consciousness that gives them life, this is a fascinating, he did all this in a page and a quarter, the consciousness that gives them life is exactly the same consciousness that's, that's in any of us. You know, God, the, the entire universe is a manifestation of Satchitananda. When God created, he had to use one reality. Life is the same everywhere. It's the same life. And that's where as one advances spiritually, one feels this, you know, this enormous sense of interconnectedness. This also, in another way, I was reading a master's autobiography about astrology, outwitting the stars, and just talking about the inner relationship between us and the entire cosmos, and gemstones, and uh, precious metals, and just how everything works together, because it's all made out of the same substance. But what he says, so consciousness doesn't require a brain to exist. So the problem with the clam is not that he, he isn't a spark of divinity. It's that he doesn't have a brain that can do anything about that spark of divinity. And so all he does is open his mouth to eat and close it when he's done and then opens it again. And you know, he, he doesn't have the, the nerve structure. Um, but it is brought into greater clarity in its outward expression by the development of a complex physical mechanism through which it can be expressed. But what's being expressed is not different for, for any of us. It's just that we can do it better. And, and we can do more of it. And we can do it more consciously. Um, let's see. Let me just find the little piece I was looking for there. Uh, and also in autobiography in the section where Master's talking about Adam and Eve. And he's talking about, and I just, you know, this is, 
again, we'd, I can't really go any more than we've already gone on this one, but it talks about how, you know, God wanted a more complex entity than any of the animals. And so he created the human body with its complicated brain and nervous system so that there would be a physical vehicle capable of manifesting the totality of consciousness. And then oddly in there he says, and he took the souls of two animals and put them into that being. I mean, that's what's right in the autobiography. I, I don't know what, where to go with that. There's a, a, lot, a lot that's hard to understand. But nonetheless, it's again that statement that in order for more of Satchitananda to express, there just had to be more complicated vehicles so it could come into outward expression. Isn't that a fascinating way to look at it? In another place, I believe it was in one of these articles, also, or it was somewhere else that I was reading Swami's words, he talked about from the astral world, you realize that that physical manifestation is not, not a fixed entity but is a constant stream of energy that's just, that's just shifting and shifting and shifting and shifting. And that's, that's really what we're looking at here. We're just looking at a stream of energy that's just constantly shifting. And then the ego makes the decision that I'm not really part of that shifting flow of energy, but I'm actually this one um, specific manifestation, whether, you know, primarily we're thinking in the material body, but that, that shadow of misunderstanding follows us to the astral world and follows us to the causal world. From the astral world, perhaps, it's easier to see. I don't really know. But from here, we, we identify. And then, and then Swami says in this same essay about the mystery of self, he says we're always talking about how the ego is dissolved or given up or surrendered. He said, not, he said, that's really not the way to think about it. What really, because the individuality, which is what ego is about, you know, it's, it's separating itself out, but that individuality is inherent in creation. Every atom of creation is dowered with individuality. This is a phrase we've said many times in the last couple of weeks. But what we do is we identify with the whole. It's not like we, we're always talking, and it is accurate also to say, I, you know, I got rid of the ego, I killed Yogananda long ago, no one dwells in this temple now but God. But what he killed was his false identification. Because his individuality is still there. So it's not like the individual entity that is Yogananda that, you know, incarnated as William the Conqueror and as Ferdinand the Saint or... You know, just all of those different incarnations as Arjuna, they they tell you that that individuality was traceable. So he didn't destroy his individuality. It can't be done, apparently. But what he destroyed was his identification with it. Which uh, I've, I've mentioned on a number of occasions, probably in these classes, when I hear people... Um, use use the phrase dismissively, oh, it's just my ego. I don't, as I've argued, I've I've advocated that that's not such a helpful way to look at it because, of course, it's your ego. What else would it be? The the main point is to just put it in context and not always be seeing it as an enemy. Just don't let it run the whole show. 
just become bigger than it so that when it's doing its individualized thing, it's doing it in the right context instead of just separately. Does that make sense? Yes, Nishkama. It's coming. Small, oops, I'm sorry. A loose end. Um, it really isn't all that remarkable, I think, uh, that Master chose to uh, implant the souls of two animals into Adam and Eve because what difference does it make? They're just, uh, it, it's, that's not, the, the difference is in the expression, the yeah. ability to express, not in the substance itself, which is all one. He could have got it from anywhere. Well, you know, I just sort of keep thinking. Which two animals? <laughs> you know, it, it leads to all kinds of other questions. <laughs> no, it's, it doesn't really matter. It's autobiography of a yogi. It's just the, it's the seminal book, you know. Yes, Chandra? So instead of saying, it's just my ego, what would you say in order to, to put everything in the right context? Um, the, it, maybe it's okay to say it sometimes. It's just... Um, it's hard to attack your own ego because you're attacking yourself. And what I, what I don't like, it's the consequences of peop- the way people say that that disturb me, which is that you end up being at war with yourself. And, and it's, it's like we're always censoring ourselves or feeling that we're, we're, we're worthless or we're not good in the eyes of God. Or it, and and I, don't, I don't find, I rarely find that people who use a phrase like that that it actually expands their understanding. It tends to cause self-preoccupation, self-doubt, self-censoring, and a lack of flow of energy rather than a freedom from that. Um, Swami Kriyananda, by contrast, tells the story of when he had a very deep meditation. He talked about it and how he just shouted very loudly. When he tells the story, he shouts very loudly. He just spoke to his ego and said, Get out! Get out! And he said, has said, since that time, he's never identified with anything he's done. And afterwards, Master blessed him and said, very good. So it was just a sort of an act of will, but what he broke was his sense of self-definition. Not his individuality, because he's still doing it. He just broke that sense of limited self-identification. So if that's what we're saying, that's a good idea. But mostly, mostly when people say that, they have a rather confused idea and in as much as we identify with so many things that we are now condemning, we actually end up um, at, uh, at war with ourselves. And that's, that's, generally speaking, not a wholesome thing to be spiritually. It, it, these, our delusions are as much us as our freedom. We have to just work our way through it respectfully. You know, we hope by condemnation to be free. But it, it, um, if you're if you notice how it affects other people when you just condemn them, it's not really a very winning strategy, is it? It doesn't work any better for yourself. Mm-hmm. It seems like saying it's just my ego is, is an okay thing to say only if you've already kind of expanded to the point where your perspective is big enough that is, okay, yeah, the ego's just doing exactly. its thing over there, but I'm seeing it here, at which point it's moot anyway, whereas most people are probably saying it in an attempt to not have to deal with it because exactly right. they're told ego is a problem okay i've labeled the problem now i don't have to do anything because i've because <laughs> i've no. labeled it which isn't quite true no that's exactly right it's the it's the being at war with yourself in a way that i that i generally see do not see as wholesome it's quite different to just recognize you know recognize it in a wholesome way okay good enough
So those are my little catch-ups. Let me see if there was anything else on this note. Well, there's a couple of other things, but they'll come up in the course of what we're doing. All right. So now we are at number 10, which is two and a half pages. So um, maybe I'll read the whole thing, or maybe we'll just go, go, go through it piece by piece. Toward the end of Master's life, he experienced a prolonged illness. One afternoon, when he had begun to come out of his quarters again, he was getting into his car. I and another monk were helping him. You are getting better, sir, I exclaimed gratefully. Who is getting better? The master's tone was impersonal. I mean your body, sir, I replied. I knew, of course, that he had no attachment to it. To him, however, the very distinction was superficial. What's the difference, he asked. The wave belongs entirely to the ocean from which it protrudes. This is God's body. If he wants to make it well, all right. If he wants to keep it unwell, all right. It is wisest to be impartial. If you have health but are attached to it, you will always be afraid of losing it. And if you fear that loss but become ill, you will suffer. Why not remain forever joyful in the self? Man's greatest problem is his ego, his consciousness of individuality. Whatever happens to him, he thinks it affects him personally. Why be affected? You are not this body. You are he. Everything is he. All is spirit. Unfortunately, mankind sees everything as separate and individual. The Lord had to create that appearance. Ask yourself, however, why? Why is this a tree and you a human being? The answer is simple. Without that variety, there would be no play. It wouldn't interest you. If people saw that there was only one essence in everything, painting all the scenes, directing all the action, and acting all the parts, they would quickly tire of it. For the show to go on, there has to be activity, interest. It all has to, be, it all has to seem real. Hence, this appearance of individuality. As long as man enjoys the play for its own sake... He will go on birth after birth, experiencing life's pleasures and pains. The Bhagavad Gita describes it as a wheel constantly turning. To get off the wheel, you have to desire freedom very intensely. Then only will God release you. Your longing has to be fervent. If it is, and if you are determined no more to play, the Lord has to release you. He tries to keep you here with tests, but in his higher aspect as the cosmic lover, he hates this show and wants you out of it. Why shouldn't he release you once he sees that you really want him alone and not his show, that you want only freedom in him? The same essence, conscious life, is in you and in that tree over there. The tree, however, was put there Whereas some free will on your part made you who and what you are, only the wise know just where predestination ends and free will begins. Meanwhile, you must keep on doing your best according to your own clearest understanding. You must long for freedom as the drowning man longs for air. Without sincere longing, you will never find God. Desire him above everything else. Desire him that you may share him with all. That is the greatest wish. 
and try, meanwhile, to rise above the pairs of opposites, pleasure and pain, heat and cold, sickness and health. Free yourself from the consciousness of individuality, of being separate from everyone and everything else. Keep your mind fixed steadfastly on him. Remain inwardly as unaffected as the motionless spirit you want to become. He alone is what you really are. His bliss alone is your true nature. Wow, there's a lot in there. Okay. Yeah, we'll be on this one for a while. I was uh, starting at the beginning. You know, Master, toward the end of his life, the reason he suffered so many illnesses is because he knew it was the end, coming to the end of that body, and he was using it to work out karma of his disciples. So he had a lot of, he was uh, in, his, in his quarters and his body was suffering a lot during those years that Swami was with him because it was the end and he, he was using it. A master um, in, the, in the Christian theology, they accurately say that Jesus died for our sins and that his crucifixion, his sacrifice of his, himself on the cross um, had a liberating effect on those who believe in him. But as Swami put it, as Swami explained it, Master explained it this way, um, you know, the, uh, the, the karma has a certain um, momentum that has to be fulfilled. It, it, it has, something has to happen. The, the God doesn't operate outside his law, and so the karma's in motion. And if, however, the only, the only purpose of having that karma come to you as the initiator of that karma is because it represents um, something you don't understand that you need to understand. And so the, the karma, you put out a certain energy, as Anandi describes it in the Finding Happiness movie very nicely. Karma is a circle, and the circle has to complete itself. So you put out a certain energy, and then it has to complete itself one way or another. But if we, for example, are overly attached to some reality... We, are, we, we hold a certain anger in our heart towards someone. We do something unkind or unreasonable here. Um, and then the karma comes back to us. And the reason it comes back to us is so we can understand how we broke God's law, feel the consequences of that, learn from that mistake, and then transcend the inclination to do that. So it's purposeful. It's not that we have to be punished. It's purposeful. So if from the incarnation when you were cruel enough to do something to steal your brother's money and the time when that, that the momentum of that, see what happens also as Master said, instant karma is very good karma. Instant karma is excellent because the faster it comes to you, the closer it is in your recollection of why this is happening to you. Swami always t- t- used to tell the story of when he, he got a motorhome in 1978 to travel around the United States, and he had wanted to have a motorhome for many, many years because traveling around and being guests in people's homes, because we couldn't afford at that time hotels, and even staying in hotels, you're always in somebody else's atmosphere and you're having to be hosted. But if you could be in a motorhome, then he was always at home. And so when he went across the United States, he really wanted to have this motorhome, and so... God got it for him through the instrumentality of a wealthy and generous man bought him this motorhome. 
And then he traveled across the U.S. and it worked just as he'd hoped it would. But he said he was so elated to have it. He was skipping up and down the aisle of this motorhome. And he also was conscious of the fact that he was, he had, he was allowing it to make him happy. And so not very long after he got it, he was in the back of the motorhome. They were parked, but the emergency brake wasn't on. And this was unknown. They were parked in front of a Safeway. And Swami was in the back, reaching up like this on one knee, and the car just imperceptibly rolled forward and then hit the building sufficiently to knock him over. He tried to stop himself, and he broke his middle finger. And, uh, and as he broke his middle finger, he felt, well, it gave me... I allowed it to make me happy, and so now it's giving me pain, and now the karma is balanced. And it was just... It was close enough that we know. But most of the time, um, we have... You know, you're an object in motion, and as you're running past certain things, you may knock things out of your way, so to speak. But you still have a lot of forward momentum, and it takes time sometimes for the things you knocked out of the way to gather themselves up enough energetically to intercept you at another point. That's what Master calls the the thwarting cross-currents of ego. So you, you just, it takes time for things to catch up. So by the time they come, you don't remember and you may not, you may have even advanced to the point where it seems unfair to you because you, you so don't remember causing this kind of pain that you really think it's not right. But we have to have it deep in our minds that everything is fair. But in the period of time while the thwarting cross-currents of ego have kept karma at bay, we may also realize on a, the most cosmic level, you know, I need help, I'm going to become a disciple realizing God is what I really want. And then we end up with being the disciple of a great master, but there's still this uncompleted energy out here. But now there's no point in having it hit us because we've really learned the fundamental lesson and it's just tiresome and a waste of time. And so that's where the guru takes the karma. He puts an umbrella or, or literally, he puts, when, the, when the energy is coming toward us, he puts his own body over it. And it'll hit his body, literally, but it won't affect him in the way necessarily it would affect us. There's a story I tell in my book about Swami Kriyananda about his obsession to get this uh, moped, it was called then, a very small motorcycle. We had these dirt roads, very rough dirt roads, and Swami just was determined to get this little motor scooter and any, all the men in the community who knew about riding those motorbikes, especially on those rough gravel roads, everybody tried to talk him out of it. And he was just determined. He just went and bought that thing. And he rode it. And he, he would wear his Bermuda shorts and his uh, Hawaiian shirts and sitting up totally straight like this. And he would putter around the community. And, and then finally one day, the inevitable happened. And he was going up a hill and he didn't have enough traction. And he gunned it in the wrong way, and the thing flipped over. It fell on him. The exhaust pipe landed on his calf, and a very serious burn happened at that point. Fortunately, there was somebody driving right behind him, and they managed it. And then every healer for in a 100-mile radius came to treat him, so it got infected. <laughs> and, I mean, it was really, it was a bad, it was a bad one. And there was this peculiar man who was part of our community um, who had been a hell's angel, you know, a real 
uh, Harley motorcycle guy. He was a, a big guy. His his uh, arms were so big that he couldn't wear, he couldn't, the bangle um, couldn't go far enough around his bicep in order for him to be able to wear it. So he went on a chain around his neck. Because, I mean, he was just such a, he was such a strong and rough man. We had him running our boys' um, ashram for a while. Boy, did they have fun. Swami gave him the name Ramlila, the play of God, which was very funny because he was very funny. Ramlila always wanted to be Swami's bodyguard. Swami was explaining that he didn't think he really needed a bodyguard, but Ramlila's world, you need bodyguards. But uh, when Swami was uh, there, lying, just sitting, and people were coming to see him with his foot up in this horrible wound, Ramlila came to visit. And when he saw Swami like that, first thought was, you know, let me get my hands on whoever did this to you. <laughs> and then he heard that Swami had had a motorcycle accident. And Ramlila was a very emotional man. He became very emotional about it and starts telling this story of being on his big bike and just having a head-on crash like that and being thrown off his bike and bounced on the pavement and just got up and walked away without a scratch. And he just turned to Swamiji and he said, essentially, you took the karma, didn't you? And he did. Swami took the karma. And he let me print the story, so that's the answer. Yeah. And he never touched the moped after that. But it was like he absolutely knew he had to get it. It was just so unreasonable, his demand that he have it. And he wrote it till it, till it hurt him. And then he never touched it again or even talked about it. It fulfilled its purpose. You know, I don't think Swami knew that Ramalila was going to have an accident. I've never seen Swami calculate like that. It's rather intuitively he knew he needed to get this vehicle. And he was, Swami was very trained to just follow the flow. And he just wrote it until that happened. And then whatever it was, he knew it was over. It's quite a story, isn't it? But Master was more, but Master's illness at that point, and this is also why Master's comment about this God, body belongs to God, it's all one with the ocean, what does it matter what happens to it? More than that, he knew that uh, he, what, what he, Master knew what he was doing. Elsewhere, it's probably in this book, when uh, the, the men were helping Master carry, carry him up and down stairs because he couldn't walk because he took a lot of karma in his knees. And they, the phrase, God helping God, was there. And it was, the, they, it was said in the context of Master and the disciples, and, but they all knew that what Master was suffering and why. But for him, was that suffering? It wasn't suffering. He's looking at true suffering, which is us, and realizes with a little bit of this. So there, Christ on the cross, that's true theology. He really did take that karma. But as Swami put it, it was, he, he used his body. And once he didn't have a physical body, it's not, it was, he wasn't paying it forward for everyone. <laughs> it wasn't that Jesus can't still take the karma, because he can. He's a ever-living master, but not through his body. The theology gets a little confused there. He did it for those disciples at that time, as how Swami put it. And so Master was there for those disciples at that time. He was, he was ill like that, and that, that was the reason for it. And it, you know, it was very dramatic. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like it didn't look like illness. It really did. Dr. Lewis tells a story about just thinking that Master was going to die during that period of time. 
But he wasn't. And Master knew he wouldn't. He would just take it right to the edge. So, the other part of this that I like where he says, um, you are getting better, sir, Swami Kriyananda says. And then who is getting better, Master? Is the fact that Master corrected even so small a remark. You know, he was always watching to make sure that our consciousness was what it should be. I, I've told you the story of when Swami Kriyananda was having major health crises. I don't, know, I don't know what it was. Trouble with his kidneys and diabetes and, you know, the end of his life when he was running a lot of karma through his body. Swami's medical history was completely incomprehensible because it wasn't his karma. It was everybody's karma he was running through. And uh, he went, I believe he went to the dentist and had no fillings. And he came home, and in the context of, you know, fighting for his life in so many ways, I just facetiously said, oh, thank the Lord for little favors. It's just, you know, it's just a cliche. Swami just looked at me so sternly. I thank the Lord for everything, he said. I mean, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't even let that stand. I mean, just something where we're just so subconscious in our response, but it simply wasn't an affirmation that he he thought was worthy of us to say, oh, well, good things are happening and this is God's grace. And Master, just the same. Who's getting better? Master even went farther. Who are you talking to? This body? That's not who I am. Get to know me in meditation and you'll know who I am. And then Swami says, I mean your body, sir. Um, and to, to Master, the very distinction was superficial. What's the difference? The wave belongs entirely to the ocean from which it protrudes if he wants to make it well all right if he wants to make it unwell the wisest it is wisest to be impartial i looked at that word impartial isn't that an interesting word but impartial is also it's a very interesting word he didn't even say detached or neutral impartial just means i'm not biased one way or another it's just whatever is fair whatever is true if you say of someone being impartial it's like they just weigh all the factors and then they, they make the decision according to what really ought to happen. What's the fair thing to happen? So it wasn't, you have to understand, Master was not seeking to suffer. It wasn't that, it, it wasn't that misunderstanding of the crucifixion of Christ which says the more you suffer, the more spiritual you are. Which is something that also our path is trying to correct. There's no particular virtue in merely suffering. What you have to be is impartial. Also, in um, just in general, um, another um, aberration of understanding that I perceive that people have is, is and, and this is partly why this being at war with yourself is something that I, I never like to see. People feel the way to be spiritual is to denigrate themselves. Or that in order to be spiritual, I must always sacrifice my own reality for someone else's reality. But the word impartial is much more profound than that. Because very often it's not at all appropriate for you to sacrifice yourself. That whatever um, impulse or need you have is valid and divinely inspired and you need to go forward with it. Or you're merely enabling somebody else's wrong attitude by always stepping aside and sacrificing for them. You need to very impartially assess. There was a a team that was working together at one point, and one of the individuals in that team had this strong attitude that the way to be spiritual was always to be self-sacrificing. And 
they would make plans over, you know, a, a, a commitments over a period of weeks. And this one person would always insist that they could do this and they could do that and they could do this, um, even beyond their own strength. And everybody else knew that they wouldn't be able to carry it out, but because of that insistence, nothing could ever be balanced. And when it came down, they couldn't carry it through. And it was so much more confusing if the individual had just been impartial. This is the limits of my strength. And therefore, this is what I will do. I I often uh, tell people who, who will say, you know, I would have called you, but I didn't want to impose on you. Or I would have called you, but I know you're so busy. I said, if nobody calls me, I'm not at all busy. (laughs) But the other side of it is, it's a hard-learned one lesson. You know, I'll be impartial. If, If I have a need at that point that is greater than what you're asking of me, you know, than your need, or or if I'm incapable of doing it, we'll just be impartial about this. You know, you may have a great need, but if, if I can't fulfill it, if I'm not able to, or the cost to me is more than I can pay, just that's, we'll just be impartial together. You see how easy it is then to work? And that's why Master says, it doesn't, he can make it well, he can make it sick. I'm impartial. If a good purpose can be served by making it sick, fine. And if there's a good purpose can be served by making it well, fine. And well, that, then our attachment is not to our egos, but our attachment is to the truth of the situation. And that's again where that, oh, it's just my ego, it's, it's sometimes that's a, a, such a strong bias against our own impulses that it's often not the truth. Because it may be very important for us to do certain things or to express certain things or to have certain experiences and we cannot dismiss them merely because they're ours. Every, everything, every atom of creation is sacred in the same way. Does that make sense? It's very important. Every word, you know. So he says, it is wisest to be impartial. If you have health but are attached to it, you will always be afraid of losing it. And if you fear that loss but become ill, you will suffer. Why not remain forever joyful in the self? Now, of course, Master saying that precludes his ability to have his consciousness be free of the influence of his physical body, which is, of course, where all of us get into trouble because we do not always find it possible to remain joyful in the self if the body itself is doing odd things. Swami Kriyananda had um, arrhythmia of his heart. And uh, uh, Dr. Peter, who was his physician, his private physician for many years, who, who runs the clinic at Ananda Village, he said, usually arrhythmia makes the person who's having it very agitated because we're not... Um, most of us are not conscious of our heartbeat, but the calm regularity of that is a, is a strong part of who we are, of how we move through the world. And when it begins, when something so fundamental begins to aberrate, most people find that it disturbs their consciousness. He, so, uh, Dr. Peter said, to a certain extent, treating Swami he was more like treating a horse, is how he put it, because usually he can partially tell what's going on physically by the way the person is responding. But Swami would not respond according to what was going on inside his body. So Peter had to use a wholly different way of intuition and other things. But, but sometimes when Peter was te- uh, listening, Swami would sometimes say, Did you hear that one, Peter? Did you get that one? Oh, that's an unusual one we haven't had before. You know, just 
He was, he was impartial. You know, he wasn't identified with it. Um, in one of Swami's lectures, he, he says quite simply that all fear is based on attachment. Then I was, it was interesting to me. Maybe I've read that before and then I saw it mentioned right here. I mean, obviously. But that is why. Because we're afraid that something that, that we want to be a certain way is not going to stay that way. If we are truly just recognizing that this entire world is just energy in a constantly mutating uh, dimension, uh, then we're not, we're not trying to hold any aspect of the ocean in its position. And so wherever it takes us, it's all the same to us. But all of our fear is because we're attached to it stopping at some point. That was, um, I put in the letter I wrote to you all not too long ago, my first aphorism of Swami's that I remember so clearly. Change is the only certainty. Most people resist change. That's why most people suffer. Just as simple as that, isn't it? Fear is the opposite. Fear is always an expression of attachment. So when we ask ourselves, what am I afraid of? Well, I'm attached to what? Attached to protecting my body. I'm attached to not being sick. I'm attached to, well, our lists are long, aren't they? But every time a fear arises, what is it that I'm afraid of? I've had very interesting meditations sometimes. You know, what am I afraid of? Sometimes it's not obvious. And then the question after that is, why am I afraid of that? And you'll just answer in the most obvious way because it makes me uncomfortable. Well, what is wrong with being uncomfortable? What does it mean to be uncomfortable? And you just, if you just keep very quietly in a meditative way, instead of just calling it, but just keep asking yourself, where is this taking me? Where is this taking me? Where is this taking me? And almost, well, always, you always come down to lack of faith in God. That's what happens, but it's nice to go there step by step instead of just jumping there. Um, but then you have to ask, why? Why do I not, why do I not have faith? And what, how do I think God's going to let me down? It's not that it's easy to overcome these things, but this is, again, when I was talking about the, oh, it's just my ego, sometimes a lack of clarity just makes it so much harder. We're just throwing phrases around, but we don't actually know what we mean. And so sometimes if we can just, in a very steady way, you, you know, it's not, it's not a brilliant intellectual exercise. It's, a, it's a, 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 just a gradual relaxation in the heart until deeper and deeper levels of what's actually vibrating there is really revealed to you. And the end point is not necessarily that you should give up everything. Sometimes the end point is, you know, this is something I, I need to experience. There's something that's important for me to do. It's not that we, we just do this. I mean, sometimes, for some people, sometimes, but for many of us, we just need to know where we stand. And then... What do I do with this? Because as, we, as we'll go on in this chapter, you know, we have to want God like a drowning man wants air. And we can't just pretend that's where we are and think we can skip the whole middle. So this is where all of this comes in. Any questions or thoughts before we take a break? Okay, let's take a break. All right. Um, uh, during the... Uh, break, Joyce was bringing up a point which was obvious 
because we've often talked about love, uh, love casts out fear, which is a quote from the Bible. And I've brought it up on many occasions because it was one of those early, um, early enormously important understandings that I read. I read it in the book by Vivekananda, but it's actually from the Christian Bible. I think it might be from Paul. But in any case, so if we're talking about fear as being caused by attachment, where does perfect love cast out all fear? Well, well, when we're attached to something, by definition, we're taking this world and instead of seeing it as all a manifestation of Satchitananda, we're talking about the parts that we prefer. Isn't that so? It's like, I prefer to live with this person, I prefer to, you know, look this way, I prefer to have this job, I prefer to have this home. It's like, in fact, it's all just different vibrations of Om, different vibrations of spirit, but we've divided it up. And then we become attached to one piece because we are persuaded that our happiness uh, depends on certain things staying a certain way. You know, I love my mother. I wish my, you know, my mother is going to die. I want my mother to not die. Or my mother dies and then I'm very upset because the unif- instead of seeing everything as spirit and everything as a gift from God, as a flow, manifestation of God's will, we're, we have attachments. And when those attachments are threatened, we become anxious. It's, it's only natural. And it's, and it's important that we, as I've often said, it's important to be authentic in your experience. It doesn't really serve us to affirm realities that are just words to us, that don't really have a vibra- vibratory connection. And you'll see, you'll see people trying to fake being yogis. Oh, well, you know, my mother died, but you know, it's all one. And maybe it's true, but often it's just, this is how I'm supposed to feel, so this must be how I feel. And it causes uh, enormous confusion inside. The good news is, if you're sincere spiritually, sooner or later it blows up. And the more you're suppressing, the more dramatic the blow up. But I've, I've watched it many times over the years. People are trying to shortcut and just affirm, think that they, th- they, they think they can become what they're trying to become just by saying, that's what I am instead of actually discerning what the different forces are. But love, being the opposite of fear, is, well, the primary love we have to have is love. We have love of God. We love perfect love. And perfect love is that we recognize that everything that comes to us is an equal manifestation of the Spirit. And everywhere we look, we see uh, God's hand blessing us. And so we are then, by, na- by definition, we are only attached to what God wants. And we are not attached to any of the specific things. And so therefore, if this has been given to me, and now this is taken away from me, we see behind it the hand of God. We may still be sad. You know, we may still feel the pain. We may still feel the sadness of when Sister Ganamata died and Master gave her funeral, he wept. Because he was, he was very tender-hearted and it had been a beautiful association. We will never be Yogananda and Gyanamata again. And, and he, he was deeply touched by the, the beauty of that. But that wasn't the same as being attached to it and having it. He could weep, but it still didn't touch his inner joy. Why not be centered? How did he phrase it? Um, why not remain forever joyful in the self? We can be joyful in the self, 
and still be touched in our human selves. And that's also a distinction that's important here, which is why the example of Swamiji and the example of Master is so important. Because what does it look like? And of course, our particular path looks very natural. You know, other paths are, the yogis are more austere. But our our particular path, we, we get to participate. And that's more of a challenge at times because we have to participate. We don't get to just assume an austere demeanor. We have to really participate. Swami participated fully in the life that was going on around him and so did Master. That comes up in other parts of this book, of course. Um, So does that make sense? So what we have to cultivate is perfect love. And the only perfect love is the love of God. And by definition, that begins to undermine our attachments. And once our attachments are undermined, then our fears are also undermined. Because if God puts me there, why would I not want to be there? There was that story, just a moment, there was the story of Richard Wormbrand, who was imprisoned by the communists for being a Christian. And in you know, an almost inconceivable expression of sadism, which as these things happen on the planet, um, his guards were making him for hours and hours just walk in a small circle inside his cell. And, you know, he was half starved and it just, you know, your mind, you know, talk about fear. So, and he was, you know, it was so difficult and he was having to struggle against um, being forced by these guards to do it. But he began to relate to Jesus as he was doing this because that's what he did when there. And he thought, uh, this would not be happening to me except that Jesus wants this to happen to me. And if Jesus wants this to happen to me, why would I not want it to happen? And then he, the whole experience, instead of feeling um, even fatigued, he just kept feeling more and more and more joyful. You know, and they were trying to, to torture him. And in fact, they were, he, was, he was going into a state of ecstasy because that was exactly it. Why would I be attached to not being asked to do this? Because even if these sadistic people are the instrument of it, they wouldn't be doing it if Jesus were not behind it. And you see how powerful that is? It's, you don't get there just by wishing for it. You see how much will and determination would have to be put behind it. But when you're there, um, you've solved them all. It's, it's very efficient. It goes right to the root. Burn up, you know. Um, just like a fire just destroys a whole forest, burn to the root my desires. Desires, attachments, it's all the same. Just burn it at the root and then it's all gone. Yes, Chanda. Did you forget your question? I think we went past it. Okay, we went past it. Okay. Um, you know, there's another, I just happened to have this on my piece of paper, because we I was talking about karma and the karmic circle. This is another one from Swami's articles today. He said, he was talking about uh, the fairness of karma, the absolute fairness. He says, Whatever you receive is just the energy that you yourself have already generated. He was talking about it also in terms of good karma, of good fortune, of good opportunities, as well as, you know, the dark things that happen to us. It's like we put out the energy 
And then that energy returns to us. It's like it's already generated. It's already in motion. Often I say to people, also in this idea of just being at peace with whoever you are and wherever you are, um, it doesn't really matter. It's like essentially, it's like whatever we've done in the past, it's just done. The only thing that matters now is how we are responding and what we're generating for the future. That's why, that's why Sri Yukteswar said, everything in future will improve if you're making a spiritual effort now because you're generating that energy now and then you'll receive it later. Just as simple as that. It'll, it just comes back to you because whatever you're receiving now is the energy that you've already generated. That's, the, that's what karma is, is energy that you set in motion that now has to be finished. Whether it's you know, energy of great benevolence, whether it's energy of great health, whether it's ill health, whether it's spiritual opportunity, whether it's enormous obstacles, whatever it might be, it's the energy you generated that's now finishing. And if you don't like it, then generate something else. <laughs> or if you do like it, keep on generating more of it. Because that's, that's, that's all that's happening in this planet. It's, it's very... And everything that you do, you'll get to reap the consequences of it. It's a tremendous incentive for self-control, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You have to... I mean, there's just no, no piece of you can escape. But that's the good news also. Because we're just... And, and what, what do we have to fear? Why would we want it to be different? This is, this is this, this fight that everybody has to battle. It's just, it, it is exactly what it is. This is how God made me. This is how he inspired me to act up until this point. This is, this, this is the, the particular karmic pattern that I've created. <clears throat> Why would it be different? <clears throat> Why would I even want it to be different? This is the energy I generated. This is what I have to do. I mean, no more than we would go into Nordstrom's and just take a bunch of stuff out and think we could just have it. Pay for it. Why should I pay for it? But I want it. And so we're even sitting here spiritually speaking. Well, I want to be free. Well, you have to pay for all the other stuff that you've done. You can't just have it. It, You have to move it step by step, accept what you've generated, and then do the right thing from this point forward. You You become so conscientious, just so incredibly conscientious about everything you say and just the slightest selfishness or trying to take advantage or just anything, any little thing, you know, oh, you've given me 12 cents extra in change. Here, let me give it back to you. And you think, well, you know, I'm already to the car. No, that 12 cents doesn't belong to me. You just become really careful because you don't want to be, you don't want to have to pay for it later. (laughs) You just want to settle it now. It's the principle I try to keep with, not that I'm always there by any means, I try to stay karmically current. You know, I just don't want to incur any more debts. I mean, I've got enough, enough outstanding bills that are coming due, so I, I want to keep up. I want to keep up with what's happening now emotionally, uh, every way. You know, something happens now, let me just try to deal with it now, because if, if, I, if I try to wait till later, it's going to be now then. And I might as well just do it while it's still in front of me. Face it in the moment. And then you, you become very relaxed about things. Much more relaxed, because why not? And th- this is what the advantage of community is. It's like, oh, you have karma. How shocking. 
you know? Nobody else has karma, just you. You know, of course, we all have karma. We all do unbelievable things, except there we are doing them. They're believable because there they are. You know, that's how we're responding. Yeah. While it's certainly true that um, it makes uh, eminent sense uh, to do it because you have to pay for it, you can also look at it if it feels, if you feel to, to just say it feels right. And it's always nice to do what's right. Yeah. To behave properly. So, I mean, that's what Sri Teshwar's statement, learn to behave. Swami's was, you'll, you know, the only way to self-acceptance is to have a clear conscience. <laughs> you can't accept yourself if you know that you've, uh, you're behaving badly. Th- that doesn't mean to say that you have behaved badly, because we all have behaved badly. But if you are behaving badly, <laughs> that's different. If you're consciously... But even sometimes we can't help ourselves, because we, we're just having the energy that we generated. And you just have to hang out until it runs down. That's what Swami talks about too. You know, sometimes the, you have to practice what is, you know, one of the principles of Tantra, which is a, a greatly misunderstood word, but the primary, the, the relevant concept is simply even if one is compelled by one's own impulses into situations or actions that one does not approve of, you can at least resist mentally. Instead of just diving in wholeheartedly, you can always just keep a part of yourself thinking, well, okay, we'll go ahead, but we're not really going to identify with this. You know, this is happening around me, but I'm going to keep a little bit of me outside of this. Sometimes that's all you can do. Even when you're, you know, you're blowing your top and you're upset with someone or you're behaving like a spoiled child or whatever you're doing or you're rushing out to buy all that ice cream and then eating the whole thing. Well, there we have it. Yes, did someone... No. Uh, but never, nevertheless, you're really doing as well as you can. And you, you say that truthfully. Uh, and that can be uh, pretty comforting. Well, that's the difference between making a mistake and then feeling guilty about it. And that's why I don't like to see people get at war with themselves. Because then you're just guilty and self-abnegating and um, it's not, you're not really overcoming anything. Guilt is just an intense preoccupation with your own limitations. And it doesn't change your limitations, it just adds to your limitations an intense self-preoccupation with them. And it, it, Swami, it took me a long time to understand that. Swami kept telling me when I was much younger, you just use all your energy and guilt, but that's not the same as changing yourself. And I felt like it was somehow effective, but it was just causing me to obsess about my failures. It wasn't actually using that energy um, to be more dynamically appropriate the next time. It was just obsessing about my failures. Do you understand the difference? It's very complicated. That I finally got it like this. Well, it's bad enough that I did it. I don't want to now also have a complex about it. Because <laughs> then you have two problems. The first fault and the complex. We need to pass the microphone to Leela Bhatti. I, I like it um, when I think it was Swami or, that said um, to blame God for everything, or was it Yogananda? So that 
you know, we try as best we can. We make mistakes all over the place. If we're not trying, or if we're not making mistakes, we're not trying. Hard enough. And then blame God. Well, blame God is one way to put it. Make him responsible. Recognize that you're, all, you're doing this together. I mean, the way I think about that is, I mean, I, it, that's, those are hard concepts to quite get sometimes. I think of it like this, is that he's coaching you. And so God is coaching you, and he sent you out on the field to try to make this certain play in the game, and you just weren't quite able to carry it, carry it off. So you go back to the coach, and you say, well, we, we really messed up that time, you know, how, how are we going to make this work the next time? And the coach doesn't, I mean, a good coach doesn't just excoriate you, but, you know, the coach is sort of responsible, because he put you into the game there, and you didn't quite have the skill to carry it out, so you have to come back and... You know, you go back into the huddle and you get a little bit, a few more lessons and you get a new diagram and then you run out onto the field and you trip over your shoelace and then you start over again. So you're, you're, it's, a, it's a shared venture. It's not like I'm just out there by myself and I just made a mess and I'm just lamentable and it's outside of God's will. Yeah. I have to... Whoa, sorry. I often think, you know, I can't even breathe by myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't even do that much. Our lives can be taken away from us in in literally a heartbeat. I mean, people die all the time, unexpectedly. They have some, uh, you know, uh, aberration, and bingo. Your heart beats and then it stops. And where does that come from? It's, it's just we're always, we're just always in the hands of God. That's why, just relax, go forward, remain joyful in the self, be impartial <laughs> in the way things are happening. Yeah, okay, shall we go on? Um, man's greatest problem is his ego, his consciousness of individuality. Whatever happens to him, he thinks it affects him personally. That's that marvelous phrase. Why be affected? It's just such a good question. Because we take it for granted that we'll be affected. And he just asks the question, why be affected? Well, the answer to why be affected is usually because we're fearful and attached, isn't it? And because we love certain things and we don't love others. And so all of a sudden something has happened. And then we have this self-protective response. We don't respond, we react. Why do we react? We react because in some way, something that we feel is essential to us is in some way threatened. You know, whatever it is, the orderly progression of this particular project, that I should be treated with respect, that drivers should drive better than that they do, that your personality should not be the personality that it is, that the only karma you should have is the karma I want you to have. You know, just why are we always affected? Why? um, Why be affected? I love that. I've been thinking a lot about it and uh, thinking about control, the reactive process, practice the teachings, stay in the spine. That was Maria Warner's instructions to her husband when he was wheeling her into the hospital when she had brain cancer and it was, she was going to die, which she did in a matter of weeks. Why be affected? He, she just looked at him. Just control your reactions. I mean, she, it wasn't that she didn't love him. It's just that he was a yogi and she was going to die. This is the third time she had cancer. She knew she wasn't going to make it through. Why be affected? Well, I'm going to miss you. That's an honest answer. You know, 
he could say to her, Dave did, Dave or she did, you know, you're, we've had a wonderful time together. It's been beautiful. You can be sad because the flower has flowered and is now fading. You have a perfect rose and you've really enjoyed it and now you watch it begin to wither. It's only natural to, to remember how beautiful it was and have that pull at your heartstrings a bit. You would be unnatural. Swami, in one of his essays, actually talks about that. He met a yogi in India who was 132 years old and very robust and strong. But he, he, he told Swami that his attitude was that you, just, you don't participate in this world. You never allow anything in this world to touch you. But Swami, you you're completely indifferent to anything. And Swami said, well, even if you see a beautiful sunset, even that, he said, just don't let anything touch you. And Swamiji, he said, well, obviously this man has done something because he's 132 years old, <laughs> you know, so he's obviously doing something that works. But Swami said, it's not a path that attracts me. He said, I prefer to appreciate and see God in, in everything, to be impartial, but also to embrace. He said, if God makes a beautiful sunset, I think he wants you to think it's beautiful. That's a sweet way to put it. But you see, it's a devotee's attitude. It's just that, that sort of soft way of, of doing it. So we can be affected and still be impartial. You know, we can be deeply affected. This is a beautiful experience. We're having such a wonderful time together. You know, this 50 years of life or 30 years of life or 20 years, it was beautiful, is beautiful. But everything changes. You know, why be affected? It's just, it's just such a great question, isn't it? Why be affected? And answering it over and over and over again. There's the whole spiritual path. Master just asks us, why be affected? You are not this body. You are he. Everything is he. All is spirit. Wow. Okay. I think, any comments or questions before we call it a night? All right. So, we did number 10, and we will do number 10.